Earlier this year, I was lucky enough to attend an event hosted by Telstra Health, which was an opportunity to celebrate the recipients of their 2021 Brilliant Women in Digital Health Awards. At that event, like a real-life in-person one too, super exciting, I moderated a panel discussion which included some of the award recipients and the judges from the awards, who you'll hear more from in a second. It was exciting as well. We had a good mix of in-person attendees where I was in Sydney and also in-person attendees at a parallel event happening in Melbourne at the same time. There were also people connecting virtually to the panel session as well. So really testing the limits of hybrid events and it went really well. The panel discussion from that evening was recorded and I wanted to share it with you. So in this episode, you'll get to hear it all. It's an important one too, because not only in this session, we celebrated some of the great work that many women are doing in the digital health space today, but also it highlights so much more work that needs to be done to bridge the gap when it comes to gender diversity in healthcare and digital health. And that topic actually is one of the sessions that we'll be discussing at the Talking Health Tech Autumn Summit on the 12th of May. So make sure you get your tickets to that if you've not already. But back to this panel discussion, which you'll hear in a second. In this one, during the session, we dissected the results of a recent survey that was conducted to understand gender diversity in Australia's digital health sector. So you'll hear some of the findings, and I reckon some of them might surprise you. This session is from an event that celebrated the 2021 Brilliant Women in Digital Health Awards. But put the thinking caps on and keep an ear out because nominations for the 2022 awards will be opening soon. In the meantime, here we go. After the music, you'll hear me introduce the panellists and get stuck into the conversation which took place at the Telstra Health 2021 Brilliant Women in Digital Health Awards. Collaboration starts with the conversation, Team Health Tech. Let's make it happen. Welcome to Talking Health Tech with Peter Birch, a podcast featuring conversations with key players and influencers to promote innovation and collaboration for better healthcare enabled by technology. So I'm going to invite onto the stage firstly, Emma Hossack, CEO of the Medical Software Industry Association. She is a director of the Australian Digital Health Agency and a member of the National Age Care Council of Australia and a 2021 Brilliant Women in Digital Health Award recipient. Hello, Emma. Hi. And uh, joining Emma on stage here in Sydney is Michael Walsh, partner at Powerhouse Partners and a judge of the 2021 Brilliant Women in Digital Health Awards. I'm going to welcome to the stage in Melbourne joining us, (laughs) Professor Dorota Gertig, Medical Director, Population Health Solutions and the National Cancer Screening Register for Telstra Health and... He's also a recipient of the 2021 Brilliant Women in Digital Health Award. Lastly, joining Dorota on stage is Dr. Louise Schaefer, CEO of the Australasian Institute of Digital Health and a judge of the 2021 Brilliant Women in Digital Health Awards. Hey, Melbourne. Hey, Hey, Peter. How you going? Good. You can hear us. Amazing. Really good. How's the vibe in Melbourne? I think it's probably better than Sydney. Would you say? (laughs) Great vibe. Trendier, I assume. But anyway, that's okay. (laughs) So we're basing this conversation around the survey. So last year, Telstra Health, as well as the Australasian Institute of Digital Health 
and the Digital Health CRC with the CSIRO Australian eHealth Research Centre partnered to launch the first survey of its kind to understand gender diversity in Australia's digital health sector. The survey was undertaken to coincide with the inaugural 2021 Brilliant Women in Digital Health Awards initiative. So there were nearly 300 men and women who completed the survey from within the sector and shared their perspectives on the current state of gender diversity, career progression, and equity in the digital health sector. So there are some of the findings that you can see on the screen here, but also to, to call some of them out here. So of those that completed the survey, 61% of women started their career in health and 37% of men did. So there was a high number of women who started their career in health. Women have more years of health experience, so having worked in the sector for more than 10 to 20 years. Women are more likely to think that organisations need to do more to encourage women to work in digital health. There were 64% of men who thought that there were clear pathways for career progression. However, 66% of women didn't agree with this. And there were more women than men. So 22% of women were unsure about continuing their careers in digital health. So not just healthcare, but digital health. And when asked about what's important for gender equity, men said pay equity and corporate diversity policies were important, whereas women said mentorship and sponsorship. Lastly, when asked, is there progress to be made, one in five men said no. So I'm going to sit and join the panel. We're going to get into the survey in a second, but first I want to talk a little bit more about the awards. So the judges that are joining us in the panel, we've got Michael and Louise. I might start with Louise. Tell us a bit about the judging process and what that was like. Thanks, Peter. Um, it was really hard. <laughs> um, so such an honour to be asked to begin with, and it was so exciting. It was it's easy, yes. And we talked through um, the judges and Telstra Health in terms of how it would work. And this was all before, you know, when the nominations had just opened. And of course, what happened is at the end of the day, it was like, right, we're going to have to change our process because we were overwhelmed, as you said, Peter, in your introduction, with um, how many fantastic applicants there were. So we had to revisit our processes there, but uh, it was all very good. What about yeah. you, Michael? Yes, I agree totally with Louise. It was a huge honour and also rather scary being the only male on the panel. <laughs> <laughs> but, but when Mary Foley asks you whether you would do it, Mary's a very difficult person to say no to. And it was a very great honour and I, I really appreciated it. And I, I must admit, I did feel like what I expect. Women feel like often in that everything I say and everything I do is going to be attended to very carefully and watched and judged. And while I was sitting there judging the achievements of a fantastic group of women, and Louise is absolutely right, it was really, really challenging to go through the whole uh, set of nominations. I think that there were some sort of fun things because it's actually quite uh, one of the things that gets you to be able to relax is when you're doing all these really important judging things and you're sitting there in your shorts and thongs <laughs> with your business shirt on doing the video call. So there were some lighter moments in the panel's considerations about like, well, okay, what have you got on today? And I really think it's fantastic that we get the opportunity to celebrate these achievements in person because I think that's really important. And as the survey has indicated mentoring and networking and support is actually a really critical part mm. for people to work in digital health and stay in digital health. So it was a great experience. Thank you. And we'll get to the survey in a minute too, but we're lucky to be joined by Dorota and Emma. What does it mean to be recognised in this award? 
Dorota, I'll start with you. Thanks, Peter. It's been a really wonderful experience. I've had lots of lovely messages from current and past colleagues and been able to network with these wonderful women. But I have to say the person who was actually most excited about my award was my 90-year-old mother who emailed uh, the flyers and all of the, the photos to our relatives in Poland who are also very excited. And as a child of immigrants, uh, I think it's easy to forget how proud they are of, well, of me and, and of us. And I know that was a common theme amongst the award recipients uh, when we met recently. The other lovely surprise was I received a bunch of flowers from my former high school, which was an all-girls Catholic school, congratulating me on the award just out of the blue. And it made me realise that we're also role models for young women who are just starting out in their careers. So I think it's um, when we talk about mentoring, it's also important to remember those women at the very start of their careers. Yeah, so true. And Emma, what about you? Well, first I thought I was just damn lucky to get an award for being okay at something, um, you know, <laughs> that I love. <laughs> um, and that, that's the truth of it. So it was actually very, very kind. Someone put in an application for me and, and it was just really, really touched because I think that most of the kind of work that we do, a lot of us anyway, is very much behind closed doors. About 95% of everything I do is, is, you know, it's kind of slogged behind the screen that you do. And then that probably creates a bit of mystique. It sounds a little digital health, you know, how, how complicated is that and all of that, which actually has a real double edge to it because it's not good for people wanting to go into it. If they don't really understand it or think that you have to be a computer nerd or all of these qualities which actually don't need to do digital health. I certainly haven't gotten any of the really good ones. But I think that I then thought a little bit more deeply about it after, of course, telling my 96-year-old father who thought um, I'd got an OBE and asked if I was going to the <laughs> parliament or the government house to get an award. <laughs> I wasn't. He was very disappointed. He didn't want to hear any more about it. Um, so none of my family are here. So then I thought, well, the award... It's digital health, and I think that one thing I thought I should do as a result of this, because it gives you, you know, you've got an award, so you've got a little bit, bit of importance, maybe a little bit. And um, so I thought that try to take the digital out of that digital health thing, and I know the award's called digital health, but, but I'll just go a little bit deeper. 2019, I think it was, Louise, your event, as it was then, the PIC, it might have been 2018, had a panel, and we called it, why the heck is it called digital health? And we had a great, you know, seven or eight company chairs, the chair of the um, agency and Dr. Harry Nespolin. And we just, we talked about why is it just not, part, like we know it's part of everything, um, but it's still not. There's still a way to go. And I think that the one thing I'd like to use any um, channel I get as a result of this award would be to, to make it just more of like it's not unusual, just do it like we've all done it in COVID, just extend that out and get younger women in particular um, not to feel that it's a frightening kind of techie area. Mm. No, it's such a really good, important point. And, you know, moving on to like, because it comes off the back of that because, you know, we, many of us are involved in digital health today and it's hard enough trying to drive change and motivate and inspire. Then you come to some of the results from this survey, which indicate that, like I said, 60% of women started their career in healthcare, but there's a good portion that are thinking of moving away from digital health. So I might start with you, Louise. I can see you shaking your head there. And I kind of touched on this before. It's one point that finding people within frontline workers in healthcare is one thing, but 
to find quality people to work in digital health. We've seen like example of 25 and there are many other brilliant women who are working in this space. How can we encourage more to work in this space and encourage institutions to support them to, to do that? Oh, thanks, Peter. It's a really good question. And I was actually, I was very sad to see those results come out. In that there was a lot of results that I'm sure a lot of you would have expected as well um, when it comes to the you know, diversity and pay gaps and those sorts of things. We know well about those. But the idea that there was a lot of women who were actually thinking, should I stay within this field, uh, was devastating to me. I've spent my life being an evangelist for digital health or just health, as Emma rightly pointed out. I look forward to when we can just call it health. I think one of the things that I put two of the answers together, there's another question and it was on the slide earlier about your awareness of career pathways in digital health. And there was a lot more men that seemed to think that there are career pathways than women. You know, it's a survey, it's a one-off, but I think it's worth digging into that because I would have said that there shouldn't have been a gendered difference there. We actually know that we need to do a lot better job of actually letting people know these are career pathways and there's a lot of work that the Institute, um, we're going to be starting this year on this very topic. So I encourage all of you to get involved when we ask you and say, what do you think about this and get involved in these programs. But the fact that there was a gender difference there was really surprising. So I'm wondering whether that has something to do, and you know, maybe I'm sure people in the audience would have opinions on this too, whether there's something where is, you know, do men see, well, I know where I want to go, so I will invent a pathway to get myself there. Whereas women are like, oh, maybe, you know, I'm not sure where I fit here. We don't have the answers because, you know, it's a survey, it's a, a hit in time, but I think that's worthwhile exploring and it was a disappointing, but good to know because now we can look at what we can do to address it. Yeah, knowing what we know now. Keen to get the perspectives from the other panellists as well on, on this point. Emma, I'll go to you. Yeah, look, I, I was kind of surprised by that as well because it's got, it ticks all the boxes really for a female. There's huge flexibility, not just during COVID, but otherwise with digital health for all the obvious reasons, which is a huge plus for you know, a woman if you want to be doing a family at the same time and all those things. So there's that. And then I thought, well, I was kind of listening or, or I read actually, I was, Jane Holton was talking about, you know, why they can't get more skilled people in the public service and and all the things that that she said were important for women and people generally for their job you know the location well I thought well really with digital health thinking with my life and all the companies I interact with a lot of them we haven't met they're all over the place don't know where we live so you've got kind of location you can be wherever you want the flexibility I said and the actual the purposefulness of it digital health has got I mean healthcare generally obviously is very purposeful but digital health is terrific because it's a little bit pointier than that. You're actually creating something that is actually can be finite that you hand over in many cases to a professional to use to make their job easier to get the better outcomes or efficiencies or whatever it is. So it's extremely purposeful and it's just got like all of that kind of like almost tantalising opportunity. So I was really surprised that women wouldn't want to stay. I just, I just can't fathom it. And I looking at like the people I engage with, I would have thought, and I haven't done the survey, 50% of the CEOs or senior people in digital health space that I work in, which is software, are women. You've got, you know, a lot of the award recipients like Kate, Quirk, etc., and a lot of others. They're, they're CEOs, they're leaders. So I'm really, yeah, puzzled by it, but it's something we have to, you know, work hard at. Mm, good thing for us to, to really dig into. Dorota, from your perspective, you know, to the point of the question is particularly focused around what key initiatives that organisations might be able to undertake to help with this one. Any perspective there? 
Yes, I think at the organisational level, it really has to start with culture. So having a supportive culture for women, having a respectful culture, and one that also supports women on um, in terms of developing their full potential. Obviously, policies are important, having work-life balance, family-friendly policies and walking the talk. Louise and I were having a great discussion about some of the policies you have in, in your organisation, four-day work weeks, for example. They all support women entering digital health. But just on the issue of the transition from health into digital health and that potentially difficult transition, and that's one I also went through, I started in healthcare. One of the things I really love about working in digital health is the diverse skills of the teams that we work in, whether they're in implementation or in service delivery. So we have technical people who have deep technical expertise and often none or little health expertise. And then we have health experts who don't necessarily have a lot of technical expertise. And I put myself in that category. And I think it's really important that the teams that we work with are supportive of that the diversity in skill sets and encourage curiosity and support people who may not necessarily have that deep technical expertise because we all have something to contribute. So I think that supportive environment is really critical. And Michael, representing every male on earth, no. Uh, (laughs) From your perspective, I'm just interested, I was looking at some of the the findings from that too, just to kind of add some some more, more context to it as well. Like some other points out of the survey was that there was a lot of people who, a lot of women who answered, I think it might have been people, but let's say women who answered that weren't aiming for leadership roles within organisations, mostly because of the need for work-life balance. And also that, I'll summarise really at a high level here, but there could be better clarity around career paths. So from an organisation's perspective, is that kind of aligned with some of your thoughts? It does. I mean, I think it's... Um... They're very encouraging that we're talking about it, but frustrating that like for a long time we talk about gender equity. And I think there are periods where we've progressed and then you turn around, you know, five years later and you think, well, actually, we're back where we were and then you progress again. I think in answering this question, I I want to sort of talk about what I would say is gender equity in organisations, but then in the issue of digital health in relation to gender equity. And I know that the survey is on on digital health. And both are related, but I think there are distinct elements of gender equity in digital health that are unique and make it more complex. In terms of what organisations can do in responding, well, the, it's obvious and when people say this, but like for gender equity to be saying that we're progressing, men have to change, organisations have to change, and women have to contribute to that change, and that will change them. And it's like, so whatever organisations are doing have to be focusing on what is it that allows men to change, what is it that allows the organisation to change, and what is it that allows women to contribute to that change in a constructive and respectful and positive way. And so I could probably go on like any male talking about gender equity for hours, <laughs> uh, so, but I'll focus, I just want to focus on two things, and I think it's useful. They're, they're two truisms that I think I want to use to say what organisations can do. And the first of the truisms is what gets spoken about gets noticed. So if an organisation is not speaking about gender equity, then it doesn't get noticed. It's not then allowing men to look at you know, their unconscious bias. It's not allowing men to put their foot in their mouth and say the wrong thing and actually have that pointed out in a positive way. It's like you've got to be out there speaking about it. And that also includes initiatives that are visible because you're sponsoring women to progress in their careers. You're actually holding events. You're running awards. 
this creates the environment to change the culture and to speak about it. So, so what gets spoken about gets noticed, and the corollary is what gets noticed can lead to change. The second truism, everyone knows this one, what gets measured gets done. And so it's a controversial topic, but I, I am a supporter of targets, whether they're hard targets or whether they're soft targets. And I know that there are very diverse views about that. And my reason for having that view is that where I have seen targets in place for boards or for senior executives or for workplaces, and that it is actually measured and it's discussed at decision-making forums and it's taken as an important, achieving it is important and seen as progress, it actually happens. Mm. And so I think that organisations have to do that. So it's very complex. Everyone's got to change. Everyone's got to contribute to the change. But what gets talked about gets noticed and what gets measured gets done. Thank you. Thinking that looking at the, the responses to the survey, the one that stood out was that mentoring and sponsorship, so non-financial, I guess, reasons were seen as ways to progress gender equity from those women who responded to the survey more higher than men. So the responses that men provided were different measures. But mentoring and sponsorship, I might go around the, the panellists, Emma, I'll start with you. How has mentoring and sponsorship played a part, or not for that matter, of your career progression? Well, mentorship wasn't a thing when I was young. There wasn't actually, there weren't mentors as such. You're still young, but like... <laughs> <laughs> Yes, thank you. He was talking about me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> um, but actually, looking at it from my first job on, I realised that all of the people I work with, that I still keep in touch with all of them, were in actual fact probably what you'd classify as mentors. So I was speaking to like, the wife of my boss in my first job, and that uh, just happened to be the day that I got this award. And I said, oh, I got this award. And and she said, oh, guess what, Bob? She got an award. And he goes, well, that, that's me. I got the award for it. Tell her to thank me. And um, so in, <laughs> um, anyway, so, so this old lawyer took full credit for that and, and probably deserved a fair whack of it too, actually, because it was fantastic. And the thing that I would say about that is that all the work relationships that I've built over all those years have actually been really, really about the mentorship and sponsorship. And why that is probably what's worked for me rather than a mentor program, I think, is the simple fact that when you're working on something with someone, you build that incredible trust, obviously. There's so much fun when you're working on projects with people. That's, that's just great. And you trust and you know them well. You can actually then criticise them and they don't take it the wrong way. So when people say, oh, for God's sake, shut up, Emma. I know that they're not just being mean, but they're really, you know, I'm, I'm going on a bit, see? Um, so I've I think that that relationship and that sponsorship, that's been really valuable. Um, the second one would be, so kind of basically work hard and be kind to people or your colleagues because they, they will just give you that back in spades. Um, the second one would be external networks. So uh, the kind of mentorship you get out of your direct work like boards. You know, for years I was a president of the International Association for Privacy Professionals and couple of friends here. Hello, Olga Galinovsky, Joe Russian in our midst, and um, Peter Leonard. You know, they, they kind of, we worked on so many things together that they didn't know me kind of what I was doing work-wise, but they were able to give so much back in other areas. And, and so all of those extra kind of, you know, not quite your work type boards and those things that you do, voluntary roles and all of that, 
you learn so much. You just learn so much from people. And the final one outside that kind of total work and professional level is just the mentorship that you get from those kind of friendships. And not just old friends, but people that you might run with and you normally wouldn't kind of go out to dinner with them but you run with them and you do those things constantly and they they give you feedback about your personality which is ultimately the main thing so I think that those kind of three areas have been really valuable and whether they're they're not mentorship in the way that we talk about it now where you might get uh, someone you know and say Bernadette will you mentor poor little you know Jane she's just beginning doesn't know a lot and you know that's kind of different it was actually thrown in and people just responded and I was very lucky. Mm. Thank you. Dorota, from your perspective, mentoring and sponsorship, has that paid a part? Yes, absolutely. And like Emma, I think when I was starting out in my career, mentoring wasn't a formal thing, but I did have a number of senior colleagues and you know, my PhD supervisor who did effectively play the role of mentor. And in those days, they were mostly men they, because there were more men in those senior executive roles. And more recently, I've had more female senior colleagues who have helped and advised me, supported me, but again, not in a formal way, but in a way that's been very you know, generous of their time. More recently, just in the last uh, 12 months, I participated in a mentoring program at the University of Melbourne. So I was a mentor to uh, a younger colleague. And that was a formal and structured program that ran over six months. And then there was a, a debrief session at the end. Um, unfortunately, we weren't able to meet in person, but I certainly hope that relationship will continue. And I found that that structured approach really valuable. And I think that is something perhaps the, the network could consider in different ways. Thank you. Louise, from your perspective, and actually totally off script because you can handle that type of stuff, any advice for others that are looking for mentorship in this particular space as well and how they could get more involved? Yeah. Oh, I wasn't going to tell you this story because it's a little cheeky, but now you've asked me that particular question, I sort of feel like yes. I should. Well, <laughs> firstly, let me just say, because I agree with Dr. and Emma and all of that informal mentoring, how important that is. But something that I've struggled with in my career and still struggle with is the sponsorship. I don't know if that's just my own personal experience, but someone who will like take you under their wing, open up doors for you, be really frank about, you know, Louise, it's, no one needs your verbal diarrhea. Like this is what they need from you. That sort of thing. That's something that um, because I've really struggled with finding, you know, sponsors who would help me with that, really quite difficult. So I try and do that myself. So um, like, you know, most of the staff who work for me are all in there really young and a lot of women in their early 30s. And so one of the first things I try and find out about them is what's the job they want when they leave me? <laughs> I want to know, like, how can I contribute to where your career aspirations are going? And I can look for opportunities while you are working with me. So I do try and do that stuff. But okay, I'll tell you the cheeky story. Um, so when I became CEO, I was only 34. And I'd never even had a real job before. So the whole thing was new to me. And um, someone I can't remember who, to be honest, one of my board members said, Oh, you need a mentor. And I know this woman, she's a CEO, she runs a nonprofit, you should meet with her. And I was so excited and super nervous. I just look at how naive I was in those days. Anyway, so we went to lunch and she was like this big imposing woman, like a little bit terrifying, but I was like, oh, what should I say to her? And she knew the purpose of the meeting. And I said, I'd buy her lunch. And, and she said, there's only one piece of advice I've got for you, Louise. And I'm like, oh, okay, what is it? And she goes, you need to get yourself a penis. And... <laughs> And yeah, like your response there, imagine I was thinking you might have the same look, I'm seeing your faces through your mask. I was like, 
is she kidding? Like, is she, this is a joke? Like, what? Anyway, and so, and so she could see my confusion. And she told me an honest truth. And she said, most people would look at me and say how successful I am. And I've got, you know, all these years of being an executive under my belt. And she said, even at my level, she said, even with my own board sometimes, I still need to bring a man into the room to say the exact same thing that I would say to get anybody to listen. That's the piece of advice that she gave me. And to be honest, I don't, like, I don't go around looking for, well, you're a bloke, I better get you into my meeting. But there has been times where I've purposefully said to, you know, a male colleague, I need you to come to this meeting because I think it will have more of an impact. And it's really sad that that's still the case, but it's true. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so anyway, there's my cheeky story. I get to say the genital world in a live broadcast. <laughs> At least I didn't swear. <laughs> I think as well that demonstrates so much more work to be done in this space and the reason why we need to have these sessions so that Louise can say penis in front of many people but also for those reasons even today some of those decisions get made that that really shouldn't be in a normal world so thank you for sharing that story Louise that's really helpful um conscious of time I won't throw to Michael for your perspective on this one we can talk more about it but I want to go to the next point which is more about audience engagement and so this is why I got you to do the Slido thing before, and we've got the QR code there. And there's a question. And the question is, given the skill shortage in the technical space at present, what can organisations do to attract and retain women in digital health? So we want your perspective. So there's one, two, three, four, five, six, about seven or eight responses there. I'm not sure you might be able to choose one or multiple, but do the thing, scan the QR code, and give us your response. There's different options there, mentoring and sponsorship, networking groups, policies and pay equity, policies and corporate diversity, policies and procedures to eliminate discrimination, flexible work options, parental leave for women and men, and training and education. So we'll give another couple of seconds for people to respond. <laughs> Got it? There we go. Hey. So I can see here. Should we flick over and see the responses? Let's do it. Flexible work options, 64%. Still moving. There we go. Mentoring and sponsorship is right up there, but 64, 60-something. 60 I don't have my glasses. 63%. There we go. Um, have said flexible work options. Uh, right down the bottom is parental leave for women and men. Oh, it's just moved. There you go. Networking groups is there, but still above that is training and education, 44%. Over 50% of people have said mentoring and sponsorship. Mm. But above that is flexible work. And that seems to be the strong one. There's a few more responses coming in. But interesting to see the people who are attending live today, 63% of people have said that given the skill shortage in the technical space at present, what can organisations do to attract and retain women in digital health? 63% of people said flexible work options. We'll go to you, Michael unprompted live uh, feedback here. What's your take on those responses? Yeah, thanks. I was just trying to think of a, you know, a story that matched Louise's, but, <laughs> but I can't, I can't. Yeah. But I was thinking if it was a bloke getting mentored by another bloke, what would it be that would be the question that was asked where the answer was, well, you just got to lose your penis. Mm. And I'm thinking to myself, I can't think where that would be the case. And I think trying. it goes back to another point that Louise made and that is I actually think well I know that there's a whole lot of informal mentoring and sponsorship that goes on in organizations that historically is amongst men 
And the maturity of that is more advanced than what happens for women. And I think that's something that's got to change. Like there has all these strategies change that. But I do think that's a really important part. I also think digital health as a sector is in its infancy. When you look at how long it's been around, it hasn't been around as long as medicine or nursing or allied health. And yet it's an element of that system, of that health system. And so I look at this survey and think, well, flexible work options as being a really important part in digital health. Actually, when you look at the broader health sector, flexible work options is really an important part of the health sector. There's a vast majority of people in the health sector work flexible hours. And if we've got within that digital health area that's not reflecting that, then that's problematic. I also think that because of digital health being in its infancy, and also digital health itself in the health system is a disruptor. Like everyone is affected and everyone has to change their work practices because digital health is becoming more pervasive in their everyday work. And which is why I think the second one, mentoring and sponsorship, becomes really important because the men don't know how to be leaders in digital health either. They just happen to have the opportunity to fail first. And so I think it's really important. And I think it's both informal and formal. The other ones, you know, training in education policies on pay and equity and networking groups, I can see that as being critical. I want to go back to the survey, though, because I had the privilege of being part of a lot of forums to talk about gender equity and to hear women's stories, to hear stories like Emma and Dorota have talked about as recipients of these awards. And there's a theme that runs through, in my view, that runs through these issues and also what those stories are. And it's the three R's. There's three R's in school. That's, you know, reading, writing, arithmetic. Clearly not spelling. <laughs> uh, and, I, and, and I believe there's three R's in the stories I've heard of women's careers. And, and the three R's are, are risk, resilience, and relationships. The women who take risks, who feel confident about the support they have, the people, their own capability and so forth, who take risks, are people who come into digital health, who go into and have success. But you, you can't have risk if you're not resilient. Because taking risk means you get hurt and you have to reassess and you have to step back and you have to seek support and, and you have to go and do courses and you've got to go and do a whole lot of things. And then the last thing is the people around you, whether that's informal or formal, the relationships that you have, mentoring, sponsorship, being confident about asking for and working towards flexible working hours, seeking training. And so those relationships are absolutely critical. So when I look at these, that's saying to me that the stories that I've heard about risk resilience and relationships are reflective in digital health. And that's what we've got to try and create for women to join and to stay and to progress. Nice summary. Thank you. I would like to, we've just hit time for this panel conversation. I'd like to be able to make sure we've got plenty of time for networking after this as well, but maybe just as a final chance for each of the panelists to provide their thoughts, whether it's based on the responses live from the server or anything else from the discussion today. Dorota, I might start with you and then Louise and then Emma to close. Well, what strikes me about these results is that perhaps with the exception of pay equity, which is a little bit more fraught, these should be quite easily achievable. I mean, flexible work options now, it should be a no-brainer, as with the remainder. So I, I really think we should be making a lot more progress than we are. Mm. And Louise? 
Yeah, well, I just thought I'd use my last few seconds to, again, congratulate the 25 women, well, actually all the 140 who applied, but the 25 women who were selected, you guys are just such role models. There's people who have been contributing in this space since before, some of the other people who won were even born, and then you've got people who are quite new, and it, like just to see the diversity, and so I just wanted to take my hat off to all of you, and people didn't win the award for being very good at the paid job that they've got. You know, all of these people go above and beyond and really contribute to advancing digital health and the digital health community. So I just wanted to say congratulations to all of them again. Great. Thank you. And Emma, Emma, bring us home, final thought. Well, look, what Dorota said is right. It reminded me a bit of Isabella Arlando was on the radio the other day uh, being interviewed for her new book, Valletta, and she said in her 30s she heard about feminism and was very involved with the cause and equality and ability to work for women. Her mother couldn't work, and, you know, she really saw it up. Yeah, obviously, in South America, close and personal, what disadvantaged women worked under. And she said, I looked at it, looked at all the policies, things like this, making uh, more flexible, mentoring, training, you know, quality of pay. Well, that's all very sensible. So that should take five, maybe 10 years on the outside. And now she's 80. She said, you know, it really hasn't changed that much. So I think that given that that's 50 years and what all of these things are eminently reasonable and achievable, I kind of almost begrudgingly agree with Michael. I think we do have to start measuring and you know, I always thought, oh, affirmative action and all of that, but it's not working otherwise. So I think that we actually do need to start measuring. I think that this award is fantastic for that. I think it actually you know, starts not just a conversation, but it's kind of concrete and people will feel an obligation now to make sure that they work hard with their networks to give everyone an opportunity where there is one. So I think it's been really like a really good stake in, in the ground in the this area in this kind of funny what is digital health area so I think it's marvelous and I'm very honored thank yeah. you we might need to wrap up the conversation for the panel now so thank you to Louise and Dorota in Melbourne thank you Michael and Emma for the time thank you. thanks for listening to the show check out talkinghealthtech.com to connect with other people in our community and to learn more about the Australian health tech industry. Also, make sure you hit subscribe on your favourite podcast player so you don't miss an episode and share this episode with a few people who need to hear it. Now go make it happen.